Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Phil Casper. Today on our feature, Katrine Bruner talks about the Extinction Rebellion movement in Bloomington. That's coming up later in the program, but first, your environmental headlines. Climate deniers often argue that climate models are not accurate. They say models are full of fudge factors that are fitted to the existing climate so that models more or less agree with the observed data. But there is no reason to believe that the same fudge factors would give the right behavior in a world with increased CO2 in the atmosphere. So now that models have been around for 50 years, what is their record? The reality is that even though the early models were not as sophisticated as those today, climate models have accurately predicted global heating for the past 50 years, a study has found. The findings confirm that since as early as 1970, climate scientists have had a solid fundamental understanding of the Earth's climate system. They have shown the ability to project how climate will respond to continued increases in greenhouse gases. Since climate models have accurately anticipated global temperature changes so far, we can expect projections of future warming to be reliable as well. The research examines the accuracy of 17 models published over the past five decades. The study also includes the first four reports by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Quote, We found that climate models, even those published back in the 1970s, did remarkably well, with 14 out of the 17 model projections indistinguishable from what actually occurred, said Zeke Hausfather of the University of California, Berkeley, and lead author of the paper, published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. The Environmental Resilience Institute launched the Hoosier Resilience Index in November to display how climate change will affect Indiana in the future. Janet McCabe, director of the Environmental Resilience Institute, said the institute was created to help local governments prepare for climate change. We see local governments as key, McCabe said. Mayors and their staff are the ones who people look to in their communities when there's flooding, when there's public health issues, when there are emergencies. The two main areas of focus are extreme heat and extreme precipitation. Extreme heat is defined as days with highs of 90 degrees or more and nights with lows of 68 degrees or more. Currently, Bloomington experiences 37 days with high heat events per year. The Institute estimates in the 2050s this number will rise to 80 days per year with a medium emission scenario and 99 days per year with a high emission scenario. Under this estimate, about a fourth of the year would have days with temperatures higher than 90 degrees. This isn't an exact prediction, McCabe said. It's a projection. It could be more than that, or it could be less than that. Hopefully, people will be doing things to reduce greenhouse gases, so we'll be on the lower end of that number. 
The institute said a tree analysis performed every three years on campus is already showing the decline in certain species due to climate change. The 2016 tree analysis found 117 blue spruce trees, typically more northern species, growing on campus. 93% of these trees were in good health. The tree analysis this year found 73 blue spruces, a 44 tree difference from three years prior. Only half of these trees were in good health. Southern species of trees like the flowering dogwood and sweet gum are increasing in number and are mostly in good condition, April Byrne said. Byrne is the Environmental Quality and Land Use Intern for Sustain IU. She also said the climate of Indiana is becoming more like that of a southern state. The change in climate is expected to bring new species to the Midwest and cause others to leave, seeking cooler weather. Andrea Webster, Implementation Manager for the Environmental Resilience Institute, said she has heard reports of armadillos in Indiana. Extreme precipitation is defined as days when daily precipitation is two inches or greater. McCabe said street flooding starts to occur after that point. Bloomington currently has 19 days of extreme precipitation per decade, according to the report. The estimate for the 2050s is 22 days per decade with a medium emissions scenario and 23 days per decade with a high emissions scenario. The report also shows the distribution of land in the floodplain. 73% of the land in Bloomington's floodplain is developed land. If you have a lot of developed land within that floodplain, then there's a lot more at risk because of housing and hospitals, McCabe said. Webster said communities with lots of developed land in the floodplain will experience financial setbacks when they're hit by a flood. Both extreme heat and extreme precipitation increase the likelihood of public health issues, Webster said. The predictions in this report are in line with those published by the Purdue Climate Lab. North American birds are getting smaller. A study published in Ecology Letters has found, and scientists think the climate crisis is to blame. Researchers from the University of Michigan and the Field Museum in Chicago studied 70,000 dead birds from 52 different species. These include sparrows, thrushes, and warblers that were collected between 1976 and 2016, according to CNN. They found that 49 species got smaller by a statistically significant degree. We found almost all of the species were getting smaller, lead author and assistant professor at the University of Michigan's School for Environmental and Sustainability, Brian Weeks, told BBC News, quote, The species were pretty diverse, but responding in a similar way. The consistency was shocking, unquote. Weeks found that the bird's lower leg bone shrank. At the same time, their wingspans increased slightly. The scientists think that warmer temperatures reduce the bird's size and wingspans increase to compensate, since smaller bodies mean less energy to power the birds through the long seasonal migrations. Animal species tend to be smaller in the warmer parts of their range, a phenomenon known as Bergman's Rule, according to a University of Michigan press release. But while scientists have theorized animals could shrink as their habitats warmed due to climate change, there hasn't been a clear evidence until now that it is in fact happening. The University of Michigan researchers were able to find some birds because they had access to a unique data set. Since 1976, Field Museum Collections Manager Emeritus Dave Willard has collected and cataloged more than 100,000 birds that died on the streets of Chicago after colliding with its skyscrapers. Willard told CNN he began collecting the birds when someone mentioned they were hitting the windows of the McCormick Place Convention Center just a mile from the museum.
Because of the efforts of Willard and a team of volunteers, researchers had access to a treasure trove of bird specimens during a period when their breeding grounds north of Chicago warmed by around 1 degree Celsius. The data didn't just show that the birds' bodies changed as temperatures warmed overall. It also showed them alter in response to shorter-term temperature changes. The trend toward smaller animals is not limited to birds. Scientists have found that polar bears are becoming smaller because they don't get to eat enough. A polar bear weighs only two-thirds of what it used to weigh 30 years ago. It is harder for them to hunt their main source of food, seals. In open water, polar bears can't catch them. They wait on the ice for seals to come up for air, and then they snatch them. Because the ice sheets in the Arctic are melting away, bears can't get to their food as easily. It's not just that they are becoming thinner. There's a shortening of an indicative bone. Scientists say climate change is shifting the migration patterns of some birds, and if they can't adapt to those changes, they might not survive. Indiana University has set up two antennas to help track birds as they pass through. Less than 20 minutes east of IU's main campus in Bloomington, researchers with the Environmental Resilience Institute walk out in the cold to release songbirds they've caught in their nets. Some of these birds are fitted with small transmitters so that antenna towers on their path can track their movements. Team leader Allison Bird says the more towers there are across the country, the better the data. Quote, There's a lot of information that suggests that birds are changing their ranges, and some birds can be flexible to that, and some are going to succumb to the changes, and they won't be able to adapt, unquote, Bird says. Bird says because there aren't many monitoring stations like this in the Midwest, the researchers don't know some details about the Mississippi Flyway. She says that's why it's so important that more stations are set up in states like Indiana and that they don't get taken down once a specific project is done. The most valuable stations are the ones that persist and then have funding and a person who's assigned to them who's able to continue to keep them in operation because when a station is lost, data are lost. Indiana bird species could diminish over time because of unusually warm weather created by climate change, according to research from the Robert Cooper Audubon Society, an environmental organization dedicated to wildlife conservation. Early springs can disrupt migration cycles and when birds reproduce. The timing of food availability, such as when insects emerge, changes as the weather gets warmer. This means food could be limited by the time birds migrate to Indiana, so birds will have to migrate even farther or go hungry. If spring occurs a few weeks early, and the budding of plants and emergence of insects come early, then within a year, the bird population could decline, Environmental Resilience Institute researcher Adam Fudakar said. Their breeding won't be in sync with the timing of the resources. The Environmental Integrity Project, which advocates for better enforcement of environmental laws, says that budget cuts at the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, or IDEM, are a threat to public health. The organization examined Indiana's budgets over the last decade and found that whereas overall state spending grew by 17 percent, IDEM's budget was slashed by 20 percent. Indra Frank with the Hoosier Environmental Council says IDEM programs including drinking water safety and hazardous waste cleanup have been on the chopping block. She says, quote, the agency has compensated by assigning its low and medium priority hazardous waste sites to a, quote, independent cleanup process, which means a process that has no direct oversight, unquote. 
The report indicates that Indiana has risks mandating strong state environmental enforcement, such as leaking coal ash ponds and spills at wastewater facilities, as well as industrial plants like the ones that occurred recently at the U.S. steel plant in northwest Indiana. Jim Brainerd is keeping a promise that the United States broke. Brainerd, mayor of Carmel, Indiana, has pushed his town to make a variety of changes to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. City vehicles are now hybrids or run on biofuel. About 800 streetlights have been retrofitted with LED bulbs. Roundabouts and more than 100 intersections replace traffic lights, a change that means cars don't burn gas while idling at a stop. Brainerd is part of a growing coalition of leaders at the city, state, and business levels who have remained committed to reducing carbon emissions in line with the Paris Agreement, despite President Donald Trump's announcement that he plans to quit the climate accord. Those efforts are making a difference. A report released recently by America's Pledge, a climate-focused research initiative, found that the We Are Still In Coalition, a group of nearly 4,000 mayors, could reduce emissions 25% below 2005 levels by 2030 with climate policies that are already in place. That's progress even in a political environment that prefers coal. And now for our feature. We will hear Katrine Bruner talk about the Extinction Rebellion movement in Bloomington. Bloomington chapter of the Extinction Rebellion organization began in the early summer of 2019. The group dreamed of forming an alliance of people to respond to the climate emergency with nonviolent direct action. It was with this hope in mind that members Deborah Sanders and Ellen Tamora began their journey. The Extinction Rebellion movement has been taking action since last year. However, it was not until recently that nations abroad and even cities within the United States began putting their hands in to join the movement. Deborah Sanders and Ellen Tamora have both been with the project since the beginning in the hope to create a community that cares enough for the environment to help make drastic changes. Ellen Tamora started the Bloomington Group in April of 2019, which was, quote, slow to get off the ground, end quote, but now has grown into a rich group of individuals ranging at about 70 members pledging support of the organization. There are about six or seven active leaders of the organization. In addition, members of the UU and the Bloomington Friends Meeting have begun to take an interest as well. As founding members of the XR Bloomington organization, Sanders and Tamora give insight into what the organization means to them and why it is such an important movement overall. First, Sanders spoke about the emphasis of XR's values, and then Tamora mentioned her vision for the group. XR has an emphasis not only on the climate emergency, but also one of the demands is to care for vulnerable communities. You may not know this, but a lot of the migrants are coming to the United States because of climate change that's already happening. And so for me, XR brought this all together. When I heard about XR, I thought this might be one of our best hopes for turning things around. And XR really seems to understand the urgent need to take collective action on the climate crisis. And I think a lot of people are aware of the climate crisis, but they don't really realize how dire the situation is and how urgently we need to take action on it. That is part of what really attracted me to it. And also their emphasis on regenerative culture. It's not just about protesting, but it's also about like community building activities and you know, music and taking time to talk, then also you know, taking time to take care of the earth. And I think that's really important. 
In terms of what citizens can do for the sake of the world and the future, Stephen Leslie from the UU states in their informative article after talking with XR that humans will have to drastically change the way they live in order to make the giant leap into a solution for our planet. Sanders and Tamora both state that this is indeed true, with Sanders explaining the importance of emphasizing a regenerative culture and Tamora describing the issue of humans' relations to toxic companies and how this affects the world. We've lost the sense of community based on people, and we've moved into a more corporate culture that's very, very destructive. And that's, again, why the emphasis on regenerative culture and XR is so important to me, because part of it is about building those really, really basic, kind, uh, and even anti-oppressive relationships that are full and rich and sustainable versus a world that's more focused on corporate greed and the concentration of wealth by the very few. You know, you can blame like the 100 top petrochemical corporations for the problem we have, but we're also, you know, using petrochemicals in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of what makes it a really difficult problem to solve. And it's a problem on a scale that humans have never faced before. So um, I think we really need to do something on a scale that's never been seen before. And it's going to take all of us working on that together. As such a profound movement XR has become, it is likely that there is some reflection on how this organization relates to others in the world or even other acts of civil disobedience protests. Tamora briefly explains why the XR movement is, quote, mass civil disobedience never done before, end quote. XR is much more about mass mobilization, yeah. about getting everyone into the street, just to shift what's politically possible. Contrary to popular belief, this movement is not completely formed by civil disobedience. Sanders provides lots of options as to what one can do instead of marching the streets to still be a part of the organization. However, she reminds us that direct action is still very important. If you don't want to get arrested, there are tons of other things to do, including making art, making music, making food, strategizing, watching children, creating gardens, developing policy. It goes on and on. There's like plenty of things to do. But direct action is pretty much a key part of Extinction Rebellion. And if you don't agree with that, then this is not the organization for you. Scientifically, the climate system is made up of many feedback mechanisms that can produce both positive and negative feedback to change the effects of climate forcing. As stated by Professor Richard Somerville in his chapter on the historical overview of climate change science, he says, quote, Detecting, understanding, and accurately quantifying climate feedbacks have been the focus of a great deal of research by scientists unraveling the complexities of Earth's climate, end quote. One of the most urgent negative feedback loops that are increasing rapidly is the greenhouse gas effect. Put simply, NASA describes this effect as the way in which heat is trapped close to the surface of the Earth by greenhouse gases. These gases, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxides, can be thought of as what NASA describes, quote, a blanket wrapped around the Earth, keeping it toastier than it would be without them, end quote. As stated before, one of the most critical goals for XR worldwide is to push for dropping carbon emissions to net zero by 2025. This is an extremely ambitious goal that will require a lot more than the XR organization for help. Both members further describe the effects on the Earth, first with Tamora emphasizing the urgency of the issue for the future of civilization and Sanders explaining what this means for the planet.
we need to get to net zero and even negative, which means to reduce the greenhouse gases already in the atmosphere. Because if we don't, the temperature is just on track to keep rising, which is going to bring much more extreme weather, more sea level rise, more storms, more droughts and wildfires. It'll bring more deaths due to heat stress and ultimately, you know, will lead to the collapse of civilization. So it means things like planting more trees, for example, and stopping taking any petroleum or petrochemicals out of the ground, et cetera, et cetera. So you do both at the same time. You reduce right. the amount of carbon that's used in all sources, and you increase the amount of carbon that is sequestered. Tamora goes on to explain XR Bloomington's reasoning for why they demand carbon emissions to be at net zero. So XR is demanding that we do this by 2025 because we've been kicking the can down the road for too long. And the deadline of 2025 is just to emphasize the urgency that we need to proceed with. Looking at the future for XR in the U.S., it seems that the movement won't be slowing down anytime soon and will continue to push for these demands. Both members express their passion for the movement and what's to come, with Tamora declaring their hope for the future starting with Bloomington and Sanders emphasizing the importance of creating the world we want to live in. Hopefully we would get Indiana and the other states and the U.S. government to declare climate emergency and start taking action that's commensurate with you know, the scale of the crisis that we're facing. Because taking action is going to be really difficult, but facing the consequences of the climate crisis are going to be a lot more difficult. It's creating a completely different world, a world that's not based on corporate greed, but is instead focused on a sustainable, kind way to move forward as human beings that is in complete contradiction to what we're experiencing now. As Ellen Tamora and Deborah Sanders both state and express deeply, our world is in critical danger, and that is exactly what the Extinction Rebellion movement understands and is taking action on right now. For WFHB, I'm Katrine Bruner. And now for In Nature. This segment of In Nature is about the Indiana Barn. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower. This segment of In Nature is about the Indiana Barn Owl. To thrive, barn owls need large areas of pasture, hayfields, grasslands, or wet meadows that have good populations of meadow voles, their favorite food. Barn owls are listed as endangered in seven Midwestern states, including Indiana. Only about 10 to 15 nests are found annually here in Indiana. Barn owls, also known as the monkey-faced owl, have a distinctive heart-shaped face, dark eyes, long scaly legs, and no ear tufts. They stand around 16 inches tall, and they appear white from below and golden tan from above. They never hoot like barred owls or great horned owls. Their calls at night consist of eerie screams or raspy hissing sounds. Barn owls get their name because their nests are often placed in the barn rafters near rural homesteads and in small towns. These birds are strictly night hunters, and they feed on a variety of small mammals and other birds. They are very secretive, and the best way to detect them is to find their distinctive pellets, which consist of compact mass of hair, feathers, and bones. 
with the destruction of pastures and farms, with barns being converted to homes and roads. They are struggling to survive in today's world. WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Phil Casper. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market in Delhi, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976. Offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market in Delhi on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are an active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experiences and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. for some upcoming local events. Spring Mill State Park will host a full cold moon hike on Friday, December 13th from 8 to 8.30 p.m. Meet Anthony at the Grissom Memorial for a fun night hike. Experience nature after dark and learn all about the full cold moon. Join the Sassafras Audubon Society at Lake Monroe on Saturday, December 14th from 1 p.m. to 11 p.m. for the annual Lake Monroe Christmas Bird Count. Contact J-H-E-N-G-E-V-E at indiana.eg.edu for more information. A program about woodpeckers of Indiana will be presented at Brown County State Park on Saturday, December 14th from 2 to 3 p.m. Meet at the Nature Center to learn all about these beloved headbangers. Celebrate the winter solstice with the winter solstice hike on Saturday, December 21st from 1 to 2.30 p.m. at Spring Mill State Park. Take a long 2.5-mile walk on the shortest day of the year on Trail 3. Meet Tony at the Twin Caves parking lot. The trail is partially rugged. Brown County State Park begins its mysterious trails hike series with a hike to Kelpa Village on Saturday, December 21st. Meet at the Nature Center at 11 a.m. for a discussion about the hike. Then carpool to the trailhead. For more information, call 812-988-5240. And that wraps up our show for this week. EcoReport is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by Katrine Bruner. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green edited it. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. 
For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Phil Casper. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.